you, uh, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, let me ask you to go ahead and open up to the Old Testament book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 19 um, this morning. And uh, while you're doing that, I just I have to tell you what I've been constantly confronted with over the past several weeks. You, you know, it's been a little over a month ago, I guess, that I mentioned in, in a sermon about the temptations that we face and overcoming temptations, things of that nature. And I mentioned to you the tremendous temptation I have with Krispy Kreme donuts. And yes, yes, everyone here apparently is aware of it, and you people are so incredibly mean. Um, I, I, that, that very week I got pictures from people driving by Krispy Kreme Donuts with the hot sign on now. Pictures texted of people eating Krispy Kreme Donuts. That very Sunday that I mentioned that I received a request to purchase one of those Krispy Kreme coupon cards where you buy a dozen, you get a dozen free to support my school. So if I say, no, I can't, then I'm a mean curmudgeon not supporting the school. If I say I do, then the temptation is magnified in my life. So I went ahead and purchased one and gave the card away. You're very welcome for that. Constant reminders in my life of how good Krispy Kreme donuts are. It's like you want me to fail in my temptation. This week, this is what I received at the office. A box of Krispy Kreme donuts. Yes, some of them have been eaten. They came to the office. I had to share, of course. But you can't read down in the lower corner the writing that was left for me. It says this. You have to ask the question, why would a real friend bring you something that will only make you fat? I did ask the question, and I determined that that person must not be a real friend. That's the answer to the question. I do want to share this, though. I want you to understand that the notion of Krispy Kreme donuts, that was just illustrative. That was just an illustration in a sermon. That's not really the great temptation that I have. Since you all are so in tune with meeting the great temptations that I have, this is really my great temptation. <laughs> So you drop it off anytime you want to. Thank you. Now, let's turn to Exodus chapter 19 this morning. We've, we we kind of began a series, a, a short series last week on spiritual habits, the grace to grow within our lives things to develop within our lives as Christians that promote spiritual growth for us. How do we grow as believers? And over the next several weeks, we're, gonna, we're just going to unpack some of these spiritual habits, habits of, of life. We, we sometimes have a tendency to downplay habits. We say, well, that's not a very spiritual term. It's just a habit. Well, that's all right. It is a good habit to address and a good habit to develop within our lives some of these things that help us grow spiritually. And I know at the beginning of the year, oftentimes people are making New Year's resolutions about this or that or the other. And I thought this would be a good time for us to really examine some of these things, maybe in the anticipation and hopes that this year would be a year of progressive growth within our lives individually and 
and as a church as well. And so this morning we're going to deal with the spiritual habit of worship. And especially what I mean by that is the gathering together of God's people for the purpose of worshiping Him, glorifying Him, and bringing glory to His name. In Exodus chapter 19, we see something like this happening. And let me just give you the historical background to this so that we know where we are in the history of Israel before we look at the text together this morning and understand how this applies to our lives when it comes to the issue of worship. You will remember that the people of Israel have have moved into Egypt and now they have become a slave people to the Egyptians. They are living in bondage. They are living as servants of Pharaoh and of the people of Egypt. And God has shown up and he's called to Moses. Remember the story of the burning bush that Moses is out watching his sheep in the wilderness and all of a sudden he sees a bush that is on fire but it is not being consumed by the fire. And out of that, bo- out of that bush, God calls to Moses and he says to him, Moses, I've heard the cries of my people in bondage and slavery and I'm going to redeem them out of Egypt. And Moses, I'm going to use you to do that. Of course, Moses offers up all of the excuses and God counters each of them and essentially says, Moses, this is what you will do. Go to Pharaoh, say to him, let the people of God go. And of course, Moses goes to Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, nope, not going to happen. And this is the constant thing, going to Pharaoh, Pharaoh says no, and God sends this massive plague upon the people in order to get Pharaoh's attention so that he will relent and let the people of God go. Ten plagues that eventually come. At the end of the tenth plague, the people of Israel, the nation is driven out of Egypt, essentially. They leave from Egypt with all of the spoils and plunder. The people of Egypt are saying, here, take it all and go away. Get away from here. And then they take off, they come to the Red Sea, Pharaoh's army, Pharaoh decides, you know what, I made a terrible mistake here, I'm going to bring them back. And so he goes to get them, they're standing there at the Red Sea in front of them, the armies of Pharaoh behind them, and God parts the sea so that the people can walk by on dry ground. And then the sea crashes back down and swallows up the armies of Pharaoh. God brings them across the Red Sea, he brings them through the wilderness, and three months later, after their exodus out of Egypt, we come to Exodus chapter 19. All of this a fulfillment of God's promise given to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus chapter 3 verse 12, God says to Moses, but I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. The word for serve, it carries with it the same root word, the same idea of worship, service and worship tied together there. And Exodus chapter 19 is the record of God's fulfilling that very promise that was made to Moses back in Exodus chapter 3. And it was an awe-inspiring sight to behold when the people come to the mountain. 
At the beginning verses of Exodus chapter 19, God calls Moses and he calls the people of the elders and leaders of Israel and he eventually calls the people of Israel together in order for him to speak to them and for them to know that he is God and for them to worship him. And then we come to Exodus chapter 19 verse 10 and let's look at the site together this morning. The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people and they washed their garments and he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. The Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Can you imagine that sight? Can you imagine what that would have been like? There there is no, no tool of cinematography that would ever be able to capture this sight that the people experienced as they gathered together in obedience to God's command to hear from Him, from the holy and righteous God that they served and who delivered them out of of bondage and out of slavery. God calls the people to hear from Him and to worship Him. You look at this and you say, what in the world does this really have to do with worship? Especially for us today, it has everything to do with it. It has everything to do with worship because our worship is directed towards someone. And how we view that someone will determine how we approach him in worship. A low view of God leads to a low experience of worship. A high view of God leads to a high experience of worship. Because you see, worship, when you come right down to it, worship is hearing from God and responding to Him. 
This account reminds us as you read this and you hear the commands of God, it reminds us that the worship of the living God is serious business. It's not to be trifled with. It's not to be taken lightly. It's serious to enter into the presence of a holy and righteous God. In fact, right on the hills of Exodus chapter 19, out of this mountain experience is when God gives to the people the Ten Commandments. So much can be learned about worship from those commands that God has given. Look at just the first one. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. This is how it begins. God says, you shall have no other gods before me. We oftentimes look at that. We say, well, what God means by this is we can have nothing ahead of Him. Nothing before Him in the sense that it comes ahead of God within our life. You can't have anything that is more important than God. And, and what ends up happening is we think, well, I can have all of these other things as long as God is first. It's okay to have these other things. That is not what the word means when God says you shall have no other gods before me. Before me carries with it the idea of being in His presence. You will have no other gods before me within my presence. And let me ask you a question. Where is God? He's everywhere. There is nowhere you can go that God is not there. And so if God says you will have no other gods before me, what he means is you'll have no other gods within my presence. In other words, God is saying, I will tolerate no other gods within your life. There is an exclusivity with God and the demands that he places upon our lives. He will be God. And no other gods will come before him. There is a guard against idolatry in any form within this very verse, this first commandment that God gives, idolatry that moves from the worship of the one true God to some kind of, of substitute for God. This is in reality the fundamental sin of the human race. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, making it very clear that the people do not worship the Creator. Instead, they have taken everything that's been created and they've made a God out of it. Despite knowing God, they do not honor Him as God. Rather, they worship something else. That's the fundamental nature of what idolatry is. Something that takes the place of God. And so what happens when we do that is we create a God who is not God. But the only God we are to worship is the God who reveals himself in Scripture to us. What about the second commandment? Not only does God say in Exodus 20 verse 3, you'll have no other gods before me, but in verse 4 he says, you shall not make yourself a carved image or a likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. God comes against us as well, and He says to us, there is nothing that will adequately represent Him within our worship of Him. So we see in Exodus chapter 19, God calling His people together to hear from them, and He calls them to prepare for that meeting to take place. Friends, listen, for us as a gathered body of believers, it is so important to prepare our hearts to worship God before we ever set foot in this place. 
As I've said before and will continue to say, it is not that we come here to worship, it is that we come here with worship. You bring your worship with you when we gather together in this place. The only question is, who are you worshiping? What are you worshiping? So we come to Exodus chapter 19, verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders, lightnings, a thick cloud on the mountain, a very loud trumpet. Look at the response of the people so that all the people in the camp trembled. Is it not unfortunate that few people respond to God in worship like that anymore? He's not regarded as holy. He has brought down to our level where whatever we think, whatever we say, whatever we do is okay. And yet it is the case, not only in the Old Testament, some might say, but it is the case in the New Testament as well that when people are confronted with the awesome nature of God, it shakes them to their core. So that we pick up in verse 17, then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. They took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. God God invited the people to come near to him. But the invitation by God to come near to him has always been balanced by what God has said to his people throughout history. And it is this, to those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. We're commanded by God to come near to him. We're commanded by God to come to Him. We're even told in the book of Hebrews that we are to do so boldly. But there is a tremendous difference between coming boldly and coming arrogantly into the presence of God. The difference is how we regard Him. And we are told that we must remember that we are to regard Him always as holy. We need to be prepared to enter into worship of this God. We need to be prepared to hear from Him and respond to Him. But any preparation that we can do on our own is never enough. You see, if we were to stand in the presence of God on our own, do you know what would happen to us? We would be consumed. His holiness would would consume us, not just to the point that we would recognize His holiness, but that we would be devastated and destroyed by His holiness. That is why we dare not enter into the presence of God on our own. 
Turn with me, if you will, over in the uh, New Testament to the book of Hebrews. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Get a glimpse of what this means for us today. We see the people in the Old Testament. God calls them to worship just as He calls us to worship. And He reminds them that you are in the presence of a holy God. That's why He says to the people, don't even touch the mountain because it will be made holy by my presence. And as a result of that, as a consequence of that, you will die. So the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places. How? By the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain. That is through His flesh. Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Some of the beautiful imagery that the author of Hebrews uses here. He talks about this this curtain uh, that he's opened to us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, reminding us of the veil that existed in the temple where God's people in the Old Testament worshipped him. And there was this veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And only once a year would the priest dare to enter into the holy of holies, making atonement on behalf of the people. The Bible tells us that when Jesus Christ was crucified, when He died, when He cried out on the cross, the dead is paid in full, it is finished. The Bible tells us that that curtain from top to bottom was torn in two, recognizing in our lives the access that we now have to God. How? Through the blood of Jesus Christ. We talk about Him through the curtain, that is through His flesh. We are sprinkled clean from this evil conscience. Jesus made it possible to go into the presence of the Father. Jesus is our mediator who makes that possibility a reality for us. And Jesus has taken the guilt of our sin and covered us with the cloak of His righteousness when we repent and trust in Him. Our sins covered by His perfection. That's what makes it possible to come into the presence of God. We come into the presence of God as a result of the completed work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. You say, well, what does this have to do with us? You see, as we continue in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Did you get the command within these verses? It's a a negative command that is given here. It's coupled with the positive command of verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. There's the positive command. Let's consider how to do this. Let's stir up, let's provoke good works within each other's lives. The negative command, not neglecting to meet 
together. It's pretty clear. Pretty clear within the pages of Scripture that God has told us as His people that a priority of our lives should be in gathering together with one another. We see it in the Old Testament. It's very clearly given within the Old Testament in one of those Ten Commandments where God said, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. One day a week is to be refrained from normal activities to focus on praise and worship to God. In fact, it was one of the most visible signs to the people around them that the people of Israel, God's people, were different because they had this day that was set aside for worship of God. All of the other nations around them every day was the same as any other day. But for the nation of Israel, this day was set aside to remember what God has done, who God is, and our response to Him. Oftentimes people say, well, yeah, that was an Old Testament thing, though. We don't live under the Old Testament anymore. We don't honor the Sabbath anymore. In fact, we don't even have the Sabbath anymore because the Sabbath was on Saturday. We meet on Sunday. Yes, why do we meet on Sunday? Because it became the habit of the early church remembering that Jesus Christ in His work of salvation is our Sabbath rest and yet the church began to meet on the first day of the week in honor and recognition of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So from the earliest of moments, Paul talks about it when he writes to the church at Corinth, meeting together on the first day of the week. It has been the habit and continues to be the habit of God's people meeting together week in, week out for the purpose of what? Encouraging one another in worship to God. People have all sorts of reasons that we give for not coming to church. Well, I, I don't have to be in church to be a Christian. I, I don't have to go to church. Well, that's not what the Scripture teaches. The Scripture teaches let us not neglect meeting together. There are some solid biblical reasons why we should not forego gathering together with God's people. First of all, the presence of Christ within the gathered church. It is true that sometimes in the New Testament, the word for church is used as the universal church, all believers throughout all time and in all places. But overwhelmingly, the way the word church is used within the New Testament is a local, gathered body of believers. That's why Paul writes to the church at Rome, the church at Colossae, the church at Philippi, the church at Thessalonica, the church at Corinth, and on and on and on it goes. Why that emphasis? Because of the very real presence of Christ among His people gathered together. The body of Christ. In fact, if you look at Revelation chapter 1, in, in this revelation of, of things to come, John writes this in verse 1. He sees this vision of heaven. And he says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, 
clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. Christ in the midst of his church. People say, well, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Well, you don't have to go home to be married either, but it doesn't work out well if you don't. Another reason, absenting yourself from the church, it hinders your ability to glorify God in worship. Congregational worship makes possible an intensity of adoration that does not as readily occur in solitude. Third reason. Giving up in the meeting with other believers, it hampers your theology and your doctrinal understanding. Listen to what Paul prays for the church in Ephesus. He prays that that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. What is the breadth and length and height and depth? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. See, when we refuse to gather together with God's people, as He's commanded us and told us to do, it hampers our theology, it hampers our theological understanding. In a very practical way, can I ask you, how do we practice love towards one another when we absent ourselves from the body of Christ? Coming back to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's consider. Consider how to stir up one another. Encouraging one another. Your very presence among God's people On the Lord's Day, in congregational worship, is encouraging. How can you encourage the person sitting beside you if you're not here? Ever heard of a telephone? Ever heard of a text message? No, 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 no. I'm talking about the person sitting beside you. Right now. See, I dare say that that if we just did an informal poll, and I asked you today by show of hands, how many of you are struggling with something in your life today? Maybe it's a decision to make. Maybe it's a discouragement at work or school. Maybe maybe it's, it's frustration in friendships or relationships. Maybe, maybe it's, it's problems at home with a, a child or a spouse. 
I dare say that if I took this in sur in informal survey, there'd be a whole lot of hands that went up. we encourage each other if we're not here? How can we encourage one another? Maybe for that, maybe for that person who feels like life is just not what I thought it was going to be. Just to hear somebody say, hey, I'm glad you're here this morning. It's good to see you. Or to come along and say, how can I pray for you? God has called us to meet together. We can have all of our excuses. We can have all of our reasonings as to why we're not going to do that. But friends, can I just say, unless providentially hindered in some way, to not gather together with God's people in worship is sin. It's disobedience. So what principles do we gather from this? Number one, let us obey God's call to gather together. Number two, prepare yourself to gather. Corporate worship is enhanced by your private worship during the week. Prepare yourself to gather. Prepare your heart to enter this place with God's people. Number three, engage when you're gathered together. Sing the song. Sing the, sing the gospel together with each other. Read along as the word of God is read. Pray. Listen, respond to what God said. And just simply commit yourself to gathering together. That you might experience the grace of God to grow. Father, this morning, we thank you. Again, your word is extremely clear. We're called and commanded to gather together with one another that we might meet with you, that we might hear from you and respond to you. Father, this world sure does fight against that. In fact, as I pray, I am aware that there are probably several people here even this morning whose week has been difficult. The days have been burdensome and the enemy has come against them and honestly, when the alarm clock went off this morning, they thought to themselves, I just don't want to do this. I sure could use a few more moments of rest. So, Father, I thank you for their obedience to you. 
I ask, would you refresh their spirits, their souls this day. Bless them in that obedience, Father. And as we commit ourselves to gathering together with your people, we pray more than anything else that you would speak through your word to our hearts and that we would respond in obedience. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand this morning as we stand, we sing, and perhaps today you'd like to know more about uniting with Boonfell Baptist Church as a family member. Maybe you'd like to know more about what it means to experience the grace of God in salvation. We'd love to talk with you further about that. If that's where you are, we invite you just to step out, come meet me here, and we'll begin that conversation with you. Let's sing together this morning.